0: We continue our series in Job on the theme of when suffering doesn't make sense. Last week we looked at the wide swath of chapters 3 through 26, which present kind of the whole unit of Job and his interaction with his three friends. Today we're going to dig down into one of Job's speeches, really half of Job's speeches, in Job chapter 9. So uh, I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 9. If you're using the Bible that looks like this in the rack in front of you, it's on page 422. We're reading Job chapter 9. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Then Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his anger who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice, for he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wound without cause. He will not let me get my breath, but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. It's a matter of justice. Who can summon him? Though I'm in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself, I loathe my life. It is all one, therefore, I say. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the faces of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? My days are swifter than a runner. They flee away. They see no good. They go by like skiffs of reed, like an eagle swooping on the prey. If I say, I will forget my complaint. I will put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I become afraid of all my suffering. For I know you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Let's be seated as we pray. Father, What we've read is, is, uh, is heavy. There's a lot of weight and emotion in it. We pray that we would understand not only what has been said, but why you put this in your word. And that your word would speak to us today. So we humble ourselves and ask, you to speak, we ask that you would help us not only to hear your voice, but to live in light of it. Help me as I speak to do so clearly. May your spirit be at work in our midst, in Jesus' name, amen. There are those of us who, like Israel in the wilderness, walk through life grumbling. all the good things that God has given us, all the bountiful provisions, and yet we grumble and complain. Over and over on the pages of the Scriptures, this kind of grumbling and complaining is condemned. But there's another kind of groaning. Another kind of grumbling. It's the kind of grumbling that's birthed out of deep agony. When when the waves, the terrifying waves of suffering and pain crash upon your head and knock you down, there's a groaning that comes from that. And this kind of groaning is not condemned in the Scriptures. In fact, we see it throughout the Bible. We see this kind of groaning expressed in the Psalms. We see this kind of grumbling, this lament expressed in Habakkuk, in Lamentations. We even see a little bit of it in the book of Revelation. It's the kind of thing that happens when you're walking through life And you feel like you've just been crushed. Crushed beyond hope. Perhaps you feel like a little pawn. And the powers that be are just pushing you along, and you are at their whim. You're powerless to do anything in the face of them. You look out at the world and you say the moral balance of this universe is out of whack. Something is profoundly wrong. Something is shaken. And you have no hope. Because every possible way forward you look at, I just need to do this, or I could just do this, I could just do this, it's a dead end. There's, there's problems with this way. There's problems with this way. This is wrought with air too. And so ev- th- there's no way out. You're overwhelmed. You're crushed. In moments like these, there are no atheists. All of us sense some sort of higher power that we often direct our complaint against. Like Job, we might say, if it's not this higher power that's caused it, then who is it? Because there's some profound sense of the weight upon us being extraordinary and unique. Now, when we're crying out against God in these types of situations, we might expect the Bible to come and slap our wrist. That's enough of that. Don't do that. We might think it's impossible to sing the song, Trust and Obey, while in this way, grumbling against God. But here's what's really surprising. One of the most righteous men in all of Scripture is the man Job. And we just read half of one of his speeches that records this kind of grumbling against God. And I think Job's speeches, of all the different examples I gave, Psalms, Lamentations, Revelation, of all the different speeches, Job's is the most raw in fact, there's times where he just steps over the line and goes a little too far in his grumbling against God. In chapter 40, verse 2, God will actually rebuke Job for some of his accusations and his words. But as a whole, even that rebuke is the most gentle of rebukes. And as a whole, what Job does is commended. God says in front of everyone, Job spoke rightly of me. Job isn't renounced like Israel in the wilderness and they're grumbling. There's something different about the nature of what Job is doing and what Israel did. There's something, in a certain sense, that's right about what Job's doing. It's interesting that the book of Job includes this long section of speeches where Job says stuff like what we just read that God's unjust, that, that he laughs, that he mocks the calamity of the innocent. I mean, we could have just left that part out, just tell us that righteous Job suffered unrighteously, but he kept being righteous, and Satan got his, you know, uh, was shown that he was wrong, and then his friends did a bad thing, but Job stayed righteous, and God vindicated him. That's a nice story, but no, we have chapter after chapter like this. You see, God actually cares about our suffering. The brokenness of this world and how it affects us matters to Him. And that's why I think these. that's part of why God allowed a chapter like this to be in our Bible. So what I want to do is just make sure we understand, and I'm going to move through it verse by verse or section by section really, but then, after after we've done that, we'll do that in a somewhat brief manner. We'll, we'll try and we're not going to give an extended analysis of every word. We're going to move through this chapter nine. But then we're going to come back around and we're going to look at what was it that made Job's lament, Job's grumbling, different than Israel's? Why is it that God condones, as a whole, what Job does? I think we'll see two things at the end. So let's just begin working through what Job says. As you know, this is a part of an exchange between Job's three friends and Job. So Bildad's just spoken. The crux of what Bildad said is the same thing the friends say over and over. Basically, they have a mechanical view of God. We said it's kind of like a lever. Um, If you do good, you get good things in life. If you do bad, you get bad things in life. So Job's extreme suffering must be because he's extremely bad. That's what Bildad said. And look what Job says there in verse 2. Truly, I know that it is so. He expresses some sort of agreement with Bildad's comment. Now, that might be... Wait, wait, I thought you were arguing with them. Later on, you're going to say God treats the wicked and the, and the righteous the same way. So why would you agree? Well, Job actually as a whole, in a general principle, believes the basic idea that God punishes evil and rewards good. It's something as a general principle that's taught throughout the Bible. Now where Job will take issue is that, that kind of rigid mechanical, it's always true, he's going to disagree with that. But he does have the basic paradigm, God punishes evil and rewards righteousness. In fact, that is is the crux of his question. He doesn't disagree on the basic point. In fact, that's his very struggle. He wants to be in the right with God more than anything else. But he's not. And so he believes it's because... Somehow, if that's how the world works, he doesn't get it because he's innocent and yet he's on the wrong side of God. So clearly God has him in the, in the negative camp, in the bad news camp. He's not right with God because he agrees at a, at a basic level something's going on and that, that God must be punishing me because I'm evil even though I'm innocent. So that leads him to state exactly what he desires. He desires. His deepest desire there in the second half of verse 2. This is really important to see. But how can a man be in the right before God? So if God is set against me because of this basic paradigm you've laid out, but I want more than anything else. To be able to stand in right fellowship with God. To be right before God. To stand justified before Him. If I want that more than anything else, how am I supposed to get it? That's the question. That's the desire that that compels him. Job wants more than anything else to stand right before God. But there's a problem. And that's we see this problem. It's it's spelled out from chapter or verse three all the way through verse twenty-one. He says in verse three, um, "If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? In other words." I want to be right before God. He's against me. How can, I, how can I contend with him? I am no match for him. It appears to Job that God is set against him. And when God is set against you, what hope do you have of standing in the right before him? That's the question. God's set against me. I want to be right with him but I have no hope. Contest between Job and God? It's worse than Tiny Tim versus Tyson in a boxing ring. It's worse than uh, Carrington versus Crosby in a hockey match, right? I mean, this is there's no match. And that's what we'll go on to see over and over again. Job is going to point out, he just, He doesn't have any way of convincing him. There's no way of getting what he wants. So verses 5 through 10, Job describes God's great power. Have you ever um, played Monopoly with a child of whatever age? And uh, at some point, maybe it's not Monopoly, but at some point they get frustrated. They reach the point of... ah. I'm so frustrated. what do they do? <laughs> right? Send the game and all its stuff on the board sprawling. That's what, that's what Job says. Job says when God does something like that, it's not a little top hat or an iron that goes sprawling. It's not community chess cards that go flying across the room. It's the mountains. Because God is so vast and so powerful. They don't even know it, and in his anger, the mountains are gone. The very foundations of the earth tremble. There's a sense of scale, just this massive, mighty God. He Even talks about his his power and authority over the very foundations of the earth, over over the stars and the sun. And they can be darkened. In these initial verses, when he's describing God's power, he's saying something more than just God is powerful. Though so that's his main emphasis, but in the way he words it, kind of the comparison, he just crushes the mountains, doesn't cause the sun to shine, but shakes the foundations of the earth. He's saying something a little even about. The moral order of God's universe, right? It feels like he is so powerful and yet capricious, and yet this world doesn't make sense. The very fiber that holds it together is coming unglued. He goes on. After that, he's, you know, he'd said... I'm going to just pick up kind of what I was describing in verse 5. He removes mountains and they know it not when he overturns them in his angers, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars. But then as he starts to think about the stars, it doesn't become as negative. Now it's just describing his great power. He stretched out the heavens, trampled the waves of the sea, who made, and now he starts naming constellations, the bear and Orion, the Pleiades, and then he, calls, he describes the chambers of the south, which would have been a phrase for a portion of the sky where many, they were able to view many of the constellations. Now, Job, with his naked eye, on a dark night, would have been able to look out and see about, they tell us, about 9,000 stars. 9,000 thousand stars have you ever been out and away from the city and just the dark and be able to look out and see all those pinpricks of light and Job looks out and he says somebody put those there that is the God I'm contending against whoever hung those nine thousand specks of light across the sky what hope do I have he is powerful Job doesn't even scratch the surface. You know, in our galaxy alone, there are over 100 billion stars. And scientists aren't sure on this, but they tell us there are likely over 100 billion galaxies in the universe. You can't. You can't look out at space. You can't start thinking about space and not start doing some philosophy. Where does it end? They don't even know. They guess maybe somehow. You know, some millions of light years away it might end. But what does it mean? What's after that? What ends after that? I mean, just your mind just right. When you start thinking about a hundred billion stars and a hundred billion galaxies, the numbers are hard to quantify and get in your mind, but. But this is just a real rough estimate. But they say, if you were to take all of the sand on all of the beaches in all the world, you would have about one grain of sand for every one star in the universe. And our universe then randomly just go into that huge content of sand, and, and pick one grain of sand. That's our solar system. And I'm supposed to contend against the one who put this into place? There's no hope. And that's exactly where Job goes. In verses 11 through 18, he says, okay, now we've seen how mighty God is. I'm powerless to stand against him. Who can contend with this one who is so mighty? Certainly not Job. Look at verses 11 through 14. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Have you, like, do you ever feel that way? There's this mighty, powerful God, and I don't even see him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? I don't, he's not going to listen to me. And then verse 13, this is an interesting one. He says, God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Now, um, just want to explain a little bit kind of what, what that verse is doing. If I were to write a poem, and in that poem I said something like, the great bald eagle crushed the hammer and the sickle. You would say, that's pretty bad poetry, James. <laughs> but after that, you would also know that I was talking about the United States, the Soviet Union, the Cold War and who ultimately was victorious in that Cold War. You wouldn't think I was talking about an actual hammer and sickle. That's what's going on in verse 13. See, Rahab was a name for an ancient mythological dragon. So this kind of they told stories about Rahab. But they would sometimes use the name Rahab to describe the most mighty nation around. So, elsewhere in the Bible, it uses the word Rahab to describe Egypt because they were the powerful nation for a while. So, when he is saying in verse 13, beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab, he's saying, Whatever the most powerful nation is at the time has to cower before him. He's so much stronger than even our most powerful nation. That's how strong he is. People have no chance against him. His only hope, the only hope in the face of this this immense power is just to plead for mercy. Mercy. You think of Esther going before the king and entering into the the throne room uninvited. She'll be destroyed. She'll be killed if she steps into that throne room uninvited unless the king extends his scepter to her. And then, because she's been extended mercy, she can come and have voice. That's the picture you have. Okay, if he is this powerful and this mighty, no one can tell him what to do unless he extends the scepter. Look at verse 15. Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. But, but, it is no hope that he can, he does not have hope that God would respond to his plea for mercy. Look at verse 16. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he would listen to my voice. He extends the scepter. Now I'm there, and he doesn't care what I have to say. Why does Job think that? He tells us in verses 17 and 18, For he crushes me with a tempest. He multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath. That fills me with bitterness. In other words, if, if mercy is my only plea, I don't think I'm going to get it from him because of everything I've gotten so far. It's been it's been a crushing blow, and it's been for no cause. Job does not feel he has any grounds to be able to get himself what he wants to be right with God. He he can't get it. God's set against him, and he can't fix it. And that is that is his agony. So he summarizes that in verses 19 through 21. If it's a contest of strength, behold, he's mighty. In other words, if this is going to be a boxing match, it's Tiny Tim versus Tyson. And then he says, if it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? In other words, if this is a matter of the courtroom, It's some low citizen of North Korea versus Kim Jong un. Verse 20 Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me perverse. As you see the hopelessness in verse 21, I'm blameless. I regard not myself, I loathe my life. You see what he's saying? He's no match for God. Verses 3 through 21, saying the same thing. God is powerful. I'm small. I want to be right with him, but I can't. Because there's no way to fix this. He's not going to listen. Now here I want to just emphasize that some of what Job is saying is not right. This is not teaching us good theology. He's not giving us a correct view of God. Now some of what he says is right. He's not speaking correctly about God, but I think God's inspired it because he's speaking correctly about his own heart. You see, he's teaching us what his heart feels in the midst of this agony. And the fact that God would see fit to capture in the pages of his holy word such an appropriate picture of the human heart in the face of suffering, such a correct picture of the human heart in the face of suffering shows that God cares about us. He cares about you and your suffering. Well, all this leads Job to a conclusion in verses 22 through 24 that God is guilty for the injustice of this world. Verse 22, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. Verse 23, he mocks the calamity of the innocent. Verse 24, he covers the face of its judges. In other words, Job says, that the disordered the disordered moral universe is a product of god's government now let me take the varnish off that and say it like this the injustice in this world is god's fault that's what job says he says All over, our world is riddled with injustice. Disaster comes upon innocent and wicked alike. There's corrupt judges who are blind to justice and don't do what's right. And in the midst, in the face of all this injustice, he says, All right, if it's not God's fault, then whose fault is it? Likely, Job was not the first to have that thought. And we know he was not the last. The cry of so many in the face of hardship has been this injustice must be God's fault, He must be responsible. From that point, Job's speech shifts. I think when you think about people who are in true despair, the mark of true despair is when you can't see any way out. Every way you think of this course, it's a dead end. It's a closed door. I could could just up and move to a new place, totally change my circumstance, but then I wouldn't have the support around me that I need, then I I wouldn't be able to cope, I might not have a job, I I wouldn't know where to live, there'd be more stress in my life, okay, that doesn't work, okay, maybe I'll just move in with a friend, and there's all this other logistical stuff that... it's just going to actually add stress to my life and that friend will probably, probably be an inconvenience to that friend and they, they'll fake like they're not because they care about me but then I'll be adding stress to them and I'm just making everyone's life miserable, my life's miserable, I don't want everyone else to be miserable. You know? Even, maybe I'll just end my life. No, can't do that. If I end my life, it causes a lot more pain for everybody else. It's true to Despair. Every way forward is a dead end. And that's exactly what we see in the rest of this speech, or at least in chapter 9 of the speech. Job talks about four ways forward and shows how they're each dead ends. The first two, very interestingly, he directs to God. The same God who he said you know is unjust, who mocks at the the calamity of the innocent, he goes and he prays to him, and he talks to him, which is very revealing. But these two are things that he could do differently. He talks about two different things he could do differently, and he tells God, if I did, it wouldn't make any difference. And then the second two things he actually tells to his friends, and they're things that in a sense, could be different about God. But he seems resolved that they're not going to be. So let's look at them. In, in verses uh, 25 and 26, he just talks about his life's ending soon. So his life's just racing by. So then he gets into it. The first dead-end path forward is in verses 27 and 28. He says, if I say I will forget my complaint, I'll put off my sad face and be of good cheer. I became afraid of all my suffering. For I know you would not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? The thought here is he's like, it's the whole fake you're okay. Just act like everything's alright. Put on the happy face. You know, over those garments of that are torn and tattered of mourning, put on happy clothes. Your insides that are all in a mess, just plaster over that. The darkness that's penetrated your soul, just whitewash over that. Act like everything's okay. If you just believe it's all okay and act like it, all that will just go away eventually, right? Think happy thoughts. He says that doesn't work. It's not going to work. Because the same God, the same misery is going to be in my life, for one. And He knows my heart. He knows I'm just faking it. So He's not going to be like, okay, oh, we're on good terms again. Great. No, He knows that I'm just faking it. The same calamity is going to come upon me. So why would I work so hard at faking it? Why would I labor at that? It's all going to end up the same anyways. So faking it's out. All right, what's the next solution? Verse 29 to 31. There, he puts forward the idea of just trying harder to be holy. I'll get some snow and scour my hands. I'll get some lye and clean myself up real well. I'll just... If my, maybe my friends are right. Maybe it is uh, there's some sin in my life. I, don't, I can't even think of what it would be. It's certainly not what they're talking about, but maybe there was some sin. So if I just try harder at being righteous, then maybe God will say, okay, I'm going to give you a break. You see this. You see this when somebody in a really hard circumstance tries to make a deal with God, right? Get me out of this circumstance, God, and I'll start going to church regularly, Right? I just got to try harder at being holy, and that'll get me out of this. Job sees right through that, too. He says, God, I lived a holy life. And look where I am. I'm in the pit. My clothes abhor me. I mean, I'm just, I'm a mess. I try and clean myself up. I'm just going to be all muddied again. Why would this time be any different? I I couldn't, I'm not going to be able to exceed my righteousness. Same thing's going to happen. He's done talking to God. And then he lays out a third way forward. In verses 32 and 33, if only there was somebody who had God's ear and whom Job had his ear, an arbiter between them. Because God's not a man. He's not just like one of us that you can go and try and sort things out with. You know, If things aren't right between me and someone else, I can go and try and work that out and make us right. But with God, again, I'm no match for Him. So I need someone between us. Now, Job can't imagine that there is any possibility that there would be one who, I mean, in order to really have God's ear, one would have to be an equal of God's at some level. And yet... In order to really understand Job's plight and be able to represent him well, he would have to be a man. So there's no way for, in Job's mind that something like this could happen. And so he says, there is no arbiter. He's hopeless. How interesting that this longing of Job's for someone who could mediate between God himself, for a God-man who could do that, isn't just here in chapter 9. It's, it's, a, it's a desire that grows stronger and stronger as Job continues. You might have noticed that I'm using as our closing benediction, Hebrews chapter 4. And uh, I just want to read it. Hebrews 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest. A priest is an arbiter. Someone goes between God and man. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have this arbiter. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in a time of need. There's so many times I'm reading Job and I just wish... He had Hebrews 4, 15-16 to comfort him. That there actually was one who had come and who, who made a way for him to go to God and find that mercy. But Job, for his friends, did not have that hope and so he despairs. His last hope there in verses 34 and 35 is that God would remove the terror that he feels towards God. Let him take his rod from me. Let not dread of him terrify me. Then I'd be able to speak to him without fear. But I'm not so in myself. There's a right fear of God, right? Based out of re- reverence and awe. But Job's not talking about that. He understands that's the beginning of wisdom. It's, it's, it's part of how he's commended for being righteous that he fears God at the beginning of Job. No, this is a terror. This is the kind of thing you feel when there's there's a capricious power in your life that that is unpredictable and brings you pain, and you don't know what's coming next. He is afraid of God, and he says, unless God takes that away, I'm not going to be able to talk to him, and so he ends in complete despair. So I said we'd go through this talk and then we'd look back. we go through this speech and then, and then look back at what it was that was right about Job's groaning. What was different about Job's groaning that set him apart? That allowed this to be the kind of thing as a whole that God condones, allows? Well, two things. One, is that it was all driven by Job's deepest desire. And his deepest desire was to be right before God. Think of Israel in the wilderness. Well, what was their desire? Instead of manna, we want meat. Oh, you deliver us out of slavery, great. But, but we actually like the food better in Egypt, so send us back. They want, they want their bellies filled. They want comfort. With all that Job lost, the immense weight of losing all your wealth, all your children, all of them, are adult children, all of them, and then losing his standing in the community, no longer a wise, respected man. His deepest desire isn't to have any of that stuff back. He knows that, or he thinks he's wrong, but he thinks that this means that he and God aren't in right relationship anymore. And that's what he wants more than anything. I think we do well to look to our own hearts. What are the things that if they were taken away from us, we would start to complain against God? Is really what we want more than anything else? just to be right with our god is that our deepest desire it was for job i think that's part of why god says he spoke right, rightly of me the second thing to keep in mind with job that i think is part of why it's 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 condoned is because this speech doesn't end the book of job It's part of a wider movement, and like I said, Job, he's a dynamic character, he's a dynamic person on the pages of Job, in that he doesn't just stay where he's at, he moves more and more towards trust and hope. You know, in music, there can be an unstable chord, something that doesn't sound right, it's dissonant. And you hear it in music, and because it doesn't sound right, it kind of makes you ill at ease, Discomfortable, it's uncomfortable. But in good music, there's a tension built by that and it moves towards a stable chord that brings resolution or consonance. And that's what happens in the book of Job, right? We're at a dissonant spot. And it's okay to be in that dissonant spot because it's part of a wider song that moves towards resolution. So remembering that, yes, he was in agony and he was expressing these things, but he was doing it in a way where he's still talking to God and he's still looking to him. And as a result, he's actually moving in a, in a greater way towards trust and hope. When you are crying out in this way, groaning like this to God, don't stay there. Understand this consonant chord that's being struck in your heart right now. Not, not consonant, um disconsonant. There you go. You music people are going, he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> yeah, it's just. I, I did a little research before. Don't worry. This disconsonant moment. Understand. that. Express those things. Pray those things. Talk to God about them. But you're moving in a certain way and you trust that God is going to move you towards resolution in your heart. May we like God Job, desire to be right with God more than anything else. And may we, like Job, hold fast to God, even when we're pouring out our complaints to Him, knowing that in the end, He can be trusted. Let's pray. Father, Some of us are experiencing this kind of groaning right now. Strengthen them today by what we've just studied. Many of us aren't in that right now, but we will be someday. And so I pray that you would help us to remember what we've learned here. So that you, by your word, have prepared us for those times. In Christ's name, amen.